There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern. Uh, I'm back in my car. The kids are at home, so I'm back in my car. <laughs> and I'm here with my old friends, Tim McIntosh, Heidi White. Hi, Tim. How's it going? going David's great. going terrifically. Yeah. David, I, I want to ask a question. Um, yeah. So I have a theory. It's not even really a theory. It's more of an, um, an empirical test. You can tell who a person is by looking at the detritus that accumulates in their <laughs> car when they're not driving it. <laughs> What's the trash? What's in your the flotsam and jetsam? Flotsam and that's even better. The flotsam and jetsam accumulates in your car. The sea What's accumulated in your in your car? I'm gonna predict first. I'm gonna predict um, kids stuff like some socks that one of the youngsters was like, ah, "These are hot. I'm taking them off." And they like they're probably underneath the seat. This is a kind of standard. Check. Check. Parenting that fair. is true. Yeah. In the back seat, there is yeah. There's a couple socks, um, a sweater, a child's sweater, and a dress-up chef's outfit in in my car that belonged to the kids. Yes. So far, you are one for one. What else do you? What else do you? Okay. That belong to the kids. Okay. Uh-huh, right. Well, in this case, right. they do. I didn't say I didn't have a chef dress up. Like this. <laughs> this particular one is the one that belongs to the kids. It's in your house. Like, it should be because yeah, you wear it in my day. car. I just record podcasts in my car. <laughs> I don't drive in my Fair car. Fair enough. I just record podcasts in my car. <laughs> um, right. And observe wildlife. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Heidi, Heidi, what I else is in this I don't feel like car? these are unusual things. Go on, Tim. There's no, I'm going to give Heidi the candy wrappers oh, sure. cans. For sure. Yeah, no, there's got to be candy wrappers and cans for sure. That's my guess. Yeah, I do have it's cans. Not, I, mean, I, guess. I do it's have like cans in the cup holder like right now. It's a prophecy. But one of them is, I just opened it. So it's not just been flotsaming and jetting in my car. Um, <laughs> I don't think I have. I've got some Chick-fil-A. I do have some Chick-fil-A, a Chick-fil-A bag in the car from the other day that I did not dispose of yet. Mm-hmm. The fact that I need to and, go on is disturbing. And the fact that we're about to do, I know how this goes. The fact that we're about to do a, a close reads podcast makes me think books. There's got to be books in the car. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was like a layup. Um, Duh, a layup. But we're only there reading are. one book. A book. A single book. That's, and I have in, four. Tim said plural. Seven, ten, sixteen books in the passenger seat of my car. <laughs> I love okay, this. I think, I, this I think makes that's... me like beam with happiness. Yeah. Actually, hold on. Crime and punishment fell down beside the. Yeah. So seven, seventeen. What did I say? Seventeen, something like that. I also have the uh, box, the traveling case, to my typewriter in the back seat. What? Uh, what do you guys? The reason that um, the reason that reason that crime and punishment fell on the side of your seat is because Coulter has been reading it 
kind of surreptitiously, mm. he's been sneaking out to the car. And that would not be crime and punishment. Everything you just said sounds yeah, about that's, right. That's likely. Absolutely. Although he's I, pretty deep into, and, into the, the two towers right now. So I think he's occupied. Good for him. God. Oh, he, that, is, that is great. So I'm sitting on my bed and I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 books on my nightstand. But you have more books in your car than I have in my nightstand. So I feel like I'm failing. Or I'm failing. Just depends. Tim, wait, you're, you're back so. in the basement, right? I'm back in the basement. Yeah. yeah. We're still at the Airbnb because of the house fire. <laughs> like, it, How many books way, do you have in your dank basement? Uh, not many. I have one, two, three is all. One of them is Coriolanus, which, thank you for asking, is this month's uh, <laughs> episode of The Plays the Thing, starring Tim McIntosh and Sarah Jane Bentley, the riveting story of the Roman general who turns his back on his motherland. Bam, 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 mother. bam, bam, like, you know, Trumpets Blair. It's a really good Mother's Day play. With oh, it's a great is, Mother's Day play, as a matter of fact. You should address that. That's a great point. Okay, we're going to record this Thursday, and I need to make sure that Sarah Jane and I touch on that, especially because Sarah Jane is a new mother. Hey, mm-hmm. Tim, speaking of mothers, we have a thing that we asked, we're asking our editors and some of our contributors for Forma to do. And so yeah. um, this might be a good thing for you to answer on the air. We have not prepped him ahead of time on this. But what are some of the, what are one or two, say, books that you read or love because your mom inspired you? Thusly. Um, number one is the Bible. I don't know if that, if that counts, but that is number one. That was a good answer. Oh, man, 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 man. It's so number one that I'm going to have to work on coming up with number two. So what do you... Like, that, that's actually really sweet. I love that. How did she inspire that? Uh, she did it herself. Like, you know... She read it. She was reading the Bible herself. Yeah, she read the Bible all the time, all the time. Um, and she has verses kind of like, my, my mom does this wonderful thing where she will kind of work on something. You know, she'll, she'll say, I need to be more patient. I just really am an impatient person, which is like, like completely untrue. But she'll find a fault in herself. And soon verses about patience will start popping up in the kitchen and in the study as kind of reminders that this is what she needs to aspire to. Hmm. I love that. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that great? Yes. I love that. She sounds like a, a woman that would be an edifying person to know and inspiring. Mom also sounds like, like she knows how to use a concordance. One of the great ones. <laughs> <laughs> That was uh, that was practical so good. things of life are important too. Yeah. So it's more it's more a skill thing that we're talking oh, about. Oh man. Just that exchange, the contrast of those two exchanges from Heidi and David. <laughs> it's just like something straight out of a I just play. said we're very characteristic people. Like there's quirky things about us that make us easy to identify, and that might be one of them. I, I, it's so I want to true. apologize for saying that. <laughs> But also, I went to Bible college, and so <laughs> use of a concordance was like a great virtue. <laughs> it's really important. I mean, now we have Bible Gateway. Now you can just Google it. But I mean, the fact that you know, it's like knowing how to use the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> so. Oh, man. 
Well, speaking of the Dewey Decimal this System. This banter has gone long enough. Yeah, I need to apologize to Tim's mom, first of all. Uh, no, why? She knows that. No, there's no apology needed. Well, you know, I don't want to be And cynical. if she took, a, David, if she took offense, it would be an opportunity for her to employ her <laughs> newly found patient. <laughs> Well, well, very, very true, very true. Well, we are here to discuss The End of the Affair, Graham Greene's novel, his 1951 novel, which was sandwiched between two incredible novels, The Third Man and The Quiet American. Before we get into talking about The End of the Affair, I'm curious, uh, we talked about the power and the glory, obviously, but to what extent are you both Graham Greeneites? Like, how many, how much Graham Greene have you read? Tim, what about you? I have only read... The Power and the Glory and the End of the Affair, and I failed on reading Our Man in Havana. I failed three times, as a matter of fact. Interesting. That's, that's, yeah. Why? If you why did you get through the end of the affair and the power and the glory, but quit on or not? I don't want to accuse you of quitting. I mean, you did, but no, I quit. <laughs> I t- completely quit. I because I got bored really quickly um, with Our Man in Havana, and I'll be honest. I will sometimes read a book because it has a strong reputation and I know or I trust it's eventually going to kind of show up. Its heart is really going to show up at some point. Mm-hmm. And I did not know Our Man in Havana by reputation. Yeah, I knew Graham Greene's name by reputation, but not Our Man in Havana. And I was like, maybe this book isn't good. Maybe it's not good. So I'm going to give up a little bit easily than I would for one of the books that's deemed a classic by him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that one's an interesting one. That's definitely a satire and people would consider it uh, successful to varying degrees, depending on who you talk to. Heidi, what about you? How much of a Graham Greene? Is it a Graham Greeneite? A Graham Greener? Graham Greene? Graham Greeneite. Yeah. Graham Greenian or Graham Greeneite are both accepted. (laughs) You don't like Graham Greener? I want to be more of one. I have, you know, we talked last time about how all of our reading lists are like 200 titles long and Graham Greene's entire canon all on there. But I've read Power and Glory, obviously. And that's in my top five favorite novels of all time. Um, I've read The End of the Affair a few times. And I've read The Quiet American and Travels with Charlie. And that's it. That's it. So I'm ashamed to admit that. But this is a place where we all tell the truth. Sounds like we all, need to, we all need to read Brighton so, Rock. Heidi, I don't want to. That I bought that, but I don't. It's remember. good. Go ahead, go ahead, Tim. Proceed um, with the shaming. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just kidding. Well, actually, isn't travels Kinda, isn't uh, travels with Charlie John Steinbeck? Oh, travels with my aunt. Yeah, that's what it. There we go. I did read that. It it wasn't a classic. It wasn't one of his better books. Anyway. And what about you, David? Yeah, David. I have read all of it. All of it. The Power and the Glory and been in the affair a couple times. I have read The Third Man a couple times. I have read The Quiet American. Um I have read some of his spy stuff. I don't I haven't read Brighton Rock and I haven't read The Human Factor, which are kind of the two classic ones that I haven't read. Um and the heart of the matter yeah, is a big deal, but I've never read that either. Um, <clears throat> but it's interesting to read uh, The End of the Affair again, because it's such a book about writing books. And I was curious, it, you know, all the, all the meta elements of it. We, you know, you, there's 
been much writing on it. It'd be easy to write a PhD thesis about it. And um, I was wondering if you find the sort of heaviness of the meta discourse in this book to be uh, tiring or if you find it to be interesting and enlightening. How do, where do you stand on that? Like he taught, it's always constantly coming back to the concept of writing and being a writer and the elements of story and all that kind of stuff. Does, do you get lost in waiting through all that or does that open the book up even more for you? Heidi, can I, can I jump in Heidi before you answer and just give a little bit of um, a preface to readers that maybe haven't picked up the book yet about what David's talking about. So it's the story of a relationship that develops between um, a writer and the writer's name is Maurice Bendrix and Sarah Miles. And Maurice Bendrix is kind of constantly referring on the side to his like writer's methods, kind of the kind of schedule that he keeps, some of his past books. One of them gets turned into a movie and he and Sarah go see it. Sorry, that's all I wanted to say. Just so like, if you haven't read the book yet, you know what David's talking about. Thanks. Yeah. I, I don't find it distracting, but I think the first time that I read The End of the Fair, I, I was glad that it's written in first person because I think if it was written in third person, none of that would work at all. Like it would be self, it would feel very self-indulgent and it is self-indulgent, but that's part of the character. That's part of who Bendrix is. And because of that, it works. And I think it's wonderful. Yeah. 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 It's like part of the voice. But Yes. Yes. But I think that, you know, I know that Graham Greene has been accused of that, even in his third person novels, that just being kind of overblown and melodramatic and, and just, it's just a little bit too intense. And, and I think in, that that's probably a fair critique, uh, but that is part of his voice. And in this particular novel, it works to make the novel work. Like you need that in the novel because part of Bendrick's character is that he is just stuck in his head and can't get out of himself. And because of that, it works. And then of course, the meta narrative on writing itself is absolutely fascinating to people who are writers or interested in the craft um, because you're not sure exactly where Graham Greene leaves off and Maurice yeah. Bendrick begins. Yeah. And and how those you know those those lines between the two are very wavering and wobbling throughout the novel, and they kind of refract on each other, and that's really fascinating. For sure. Or does it? Isn't Graham Greene kind of one of those authors that's known as sort of a dual author? I remember, I think it was David mentioning when we did the Power and the Glory that Graham Greene wrote Pot Boilers. Maybe you could call them pot bowlers, you know, some like spy novels. Yeah, he called them entertainment. Serious works. Entertainments. That's right. That's right. But then he wrote more works that might be considered more of more literary merit, like The End of the Affair. Uh, I don't know. The Heart of the Matter. Um, Power and the Glory. The Power and the Glory. And so are, are, are the books that are accused of being melodramatic, do you know, Heidi, are those the pot boilers? Um, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. it's a good question. David? I don't. I'm really committed, by the way, to making, to like keeping David from just asking questions because I know how much he loves these 
books and this kind of writing. And so I want, this is a, a three-way conversation, not just David asking questions of us. What do you mean these kind of books, these kind of, what do you mean? Well, he's answering people? a question with a question. Interesting. I know. Interesting right? deflection. <laughs> I wasn't even asked the, well, ask ask the question. I made a statement. Um, I made a statement of intent. Um, here's what I mean by that. That actually, I'm going to turn my statement of intent into a question. David, how do you nice. feel about Graham Greene's writing and craft? <laughs> well, I think you can be a little melodramatic sometimes. Um. <laughs> David, do you think in the pot boilers or in kind of like across no, his authorship? Um, See, I don't know that I, I don't, I don't know that I've seen a differentiation where people are saying that his writing is melodramatic more so in his, you know, in his entertainments, uh, which we'll just, I'll just use his term for them. Partly because I, in a way, his entertainments are uh, some of his harshest social critiques. And like the third man kind of bridges that um, where it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's this sort of spy story that takes place in Vienna right after World War II and ultimately became an incredible movie. Um, and the novel was kind of an exercise before writing the screenplay. But it's, it's, this, it's very entertaining and exciting, but it's also got this really um, complex critique of um, uh, the, the political situation after the war in Europe. So I think they tend to avoid being melodramatic in part because they're a little bit cynical. I think that his more serious novels might drift that way but I actually don't think it's because of the themes of the books. I think it's because his writing is pretty earnest. Like he's, he writes in a way that I think like, even as it's being cynical, the prose itself, the, his, his style has an earnestness to it that seems to borrow from like the late 19th century and a little more so than like some of his, the contemporaries of his era or the people that came right after him. Like Graham Greene is definitely not like, uh, um, trying to think of someone uh, who who is sort of you know it's like he's not like Don DeLillo or someone like that who's like this <clears throat> mid and second half of the 20th century writer who speaks for the generation speaks for the times and is super cynical about it um, and the writing sort of drips with that you know like where it's <clears throat> there's like a sparseness that not in a Hemingway sort of way not but in a way that's like the world is a brutal place <laughs> sort of way and so I'm going to write in a way that 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 meets that um i think green is less um cynical about people's capacity to change than a lot of people were in the era and so i think his prose has has a um poetry to it that maybe not a lot of that you that wouldn't be there if it was if there was a cynical core to it and i think sometimes that can come across like melodrama to get back to the original Mm question Mm. like i think he i think that earnestness that that is in the phrasing that he puts together and in the way he thinks about the process i think is what is what makes people feel like it's melodrama um and then of course these books are often about like failed romances and things like that and so it can't help but be a little bit melodramatic i suppose or the people the characters themselves can can be a little melodramatic because they're kind of what was me about their failed relationships if that makes sense but but somebody like Don DeLillo, to piggyback on what you said, Don DeLillo's heart was broken long before he started writing, it seems like. We're talking about an author that like is not terribly like wildly popular, maybe among 
listeners of this podcast, but I think that's such a great, it's such a great um, comparison because I can barely read Don DeLee. Like I recognize what a great craftsman and I get done with a chapter and I just feel like, Oh my gosh, my soul just got sucked out of my ear because it's just so, it's just so, it's so effaced of the author's um, any sort of like hopefulness or um, upward looking, you know, like task as opposed to Graham Greene or our main character is, very cynical, but we, part of the narrative that's part of what's so compelling about the book is that we're kind of trying to hope alongside him and we're trying Mm -hmm. to hope alongside Sarah Miles. Isn't it something like that? That's my experience of this book. Yeah, I think that's fair. Heidi, do you find that this book is, um, I mean, where do you think that on a scale of zero to 10, where does this book fall in the cynics, the cynicism scale? (laughs) I'm trademarking cynicism scale. Are you asking based on the section of reading this week or on the book as a whole? Well, let's, why don't you answer about the book as a whole since this is the first episode, but don't give details away. It's not cynical at all based on the book as a whole. Okay. So then what about this section? (laughs) Very. So, so do you think then this is, that's interesting. Do you think this is a book about going from cynicism to a, What's hope? What's the yeah. word for not having cynicism? Well, it's a good question because, okay, the opposite of cynicism for some people is idealism. I don't think this book is idealistic at all as a whole, but I think it's hopeful as a whole. But the section that we just read gives us the problem of the book. And so because of that, it's cynical. And that's his problem. Like that's Maurice's problem. He's, he's wounded. He's angry. He's deeply hurt. And he's constantly trying to get on top of that, get off of his back foot, get, get back in control of the situation. And because of that, he, he's unreliable. He makes a lot of, uh, he, he talks a lot about hate and, and that's the, the, I, the melodramatic part of it, which actually totally works for the novel. It's his constant contrast between um, his, his intense feelings of what he tries to identify as hate, which is really just thwarted desire, right? So he, he uses a such strong language to describe what we all recognize as he didn't get what he wanted and he's mad about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's interesting. I was thinking while reading it again last night that the section alternates between this great insight mm-hmm. into the world and into the creative process and even into other people around him, which is which is what a great writer has, you know, at their disposal. That's that's what this one of the skills of great writing is being able to observe facts about other people's uh, characters. Um, but then it alternates between that with this sort of uh, complaining, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, this, this uh, sort of selfish. Uh, I can't think of another word besides complaining, but just this this idea well, that the world like owes him something and petty. Like, let him. Yeah, petty, petty. Yes, he's like very petty, but he's in his mind. It's like this great love affair. Like it's this trial. He uses like this, martyr. you know, sweeping. Yes, that's exactly it. He uses this martyrdom language for just like his petty whining, which what he's been through is actually really sad and hard and I'm not minimizing it. 
um, and his feelings are very deep, but he's using language to describe it that is melodramatic. One of the things that I like about this book is, is or that I find fascinating about it at any rate, um, is I, I kind of think it's about, I'm going to over. I'm going to say this in a way that's, that's overstates it for the sake of the podcast. But I think this is a melodramatically. Book. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but now we have to have a discussion about whether melodrama and overstatement are the same thing. Um, but our, uh, I think this might be a, I think this might be a book about what happens to a person when they think that they're the main character of their story. Mm. Um, I, I mean, mm. I think that's one of the reasons why it's such a meta story like the concept of narrative being throughout the whole thing and like how you craft narrative because it makes an author someone who creates stories who creates characters and creates narrative and makes choices like that the perfect gateway into an exploration of that i actually think that's a lot of what graham green is focused on and i think part of it is because it was sort of something he struggled with um and so he's kind of working out some of his own neuroses uh like almost everybody, right? Like we all feel like all the time we're the main character of our stories, when in reality we're not. Um, we're not really any more main person in the story than, the, than like I'm not more of a main person in my story than you are, except you're just in less scenes, I guess, of my part of the story. But thinking of ourselves as being like the main character in, in a story is I think what this, the, 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 thought, the flaws and the fallout of that way of looking at the world, I think is what this book is, is, is about. Um, and so I think that brings the, the, some of the melodrama, melodramatic aspects, uh, I think it helps put it into a different light because I think that it's like, in a way it's meant to be, it's meant to show the sort of foolishness of that way of looking at things as opposed to saying this book is lacking because it's, it's, it's a lesser book because there's melodrama in it. I think the melodrama is part of the point. Exactly. I completely agree. What do you think, Tim? I agree. Are we done? It doesn't strike me. Yeah. End of, end of show. I'll be honest. Um, it it has not struck me yet as a melodramatic book. I mean, on the opening page, when he talks about, you know, this is a document of hate, I can't remember the exact words. It's not a love story, but it's a story of hate that edged a little bit for me into melodrama, but I, I'll be honest, the opening section for the most part did not, but maybe I'm, I'm missing something. I think maybe that's not what you maybe, guys are asserting. Maybe you have a greater appetite for melodrama. Maybe I do. <laughs> well, what, as a writer, as someone who spends his day in you know crafting characters and scenes and all that, I, I think that when you have comments about that part of what he's talking about in this book, you need to jump in whenever you want to because I want to hear from you. Oh, I have became a little bit obsessed uh, last month with what other writers outputs were like how much how much did they generate you know in a day or in a week and i actually found a website in which someone compiled like references from authors themselves about what their output was and grand green was one that was listed what did he have it says it in um the opening section that we read excuse me how many words? 500 a day. That's right. 500. Stephen King's, by contrast, was something like incredible. Something like 2,000 or something like that. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, that, that, that part really piqued my curiosity because it's hard to know. 
you have to set goals for how much you're going to accomplish and gauging whether or not the goals are too little or too much is not easy. So I found Graham Greene's 500 words a day to be, that's, that's, that looks like a good mark. I like 500 words a day. How many words a day do you do? I aim for two pages. I, what is two pages, 1.5 spacing at 12 point font? Man, we are like in the weeds here. <laughs> uh, probably like 400. I was going to say it's about 500 a day. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. That's my goal. And I usually hit it. Although you're writing plays. So there's a lot of white space on the page. So you might be cheating. No, no. This is for something that's not just a play. I think for, for plays, it would be a different count. It would be yeah, really every day count. you've got to kill off one character. There's got to be at least yes, one exactly. sword fight. Yeah. yeah. That's the mark of prosperity. Yeah. Right. Right. right, right, right prosperity. Right. I mean, I think okay. if, you, if you have 20 sword fights in a play, that's a good start. And you can always cut some out or add more if you need to. Yes, exactly. 20 seems sword to be fighting the threshold. always makes things better. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk uh, in some more depth about I want to talk about the the story thing. I want to talk about what you just said. Be, because, David, because, not what Tim just said about sword fighting or whatever, um, but about the hero in your own story thing, because I totally agree that that's what this book is about. And I think that's why his whiny voice at the beginning is so compelling as you get farther along in the story. And if anyone's bogged down in it, like keep going because it is so good in light of the rest of the book. It's so good and it's absolutely necessary and craftsman wise. And I, I like how, and I, there's so much to talk about about this book. Um, cause he keeps calling himself a craftsman and that that's what he's known for and blah, blah, blah. And I want to talk about that. But in terms of the, the craftsmanship of the story, that is absolutely necessary in light of the whole rest of the book that he is so self-absorbed here at the beginning that, and yet Graham Greene somehow manages to communicate even through Maurice Spendrix's whiny voice that Sarah is a truly lovable woman and that there's something good about her and that he is on that he's not getting this right like and somehow and we're not sure exactly how at the beginning because on the other hand they're having an affair she's cheating on her husband with him and we don't know whether or not she has another lover at this point and what's going on between them. So there's enough mystery to keep you going to figure out what's happening between them. And there's enough information for us to know that there's something compelling about Sarah. And there's enough to really get to know Maurice. Do you guys like him in this part of the book? Like, do you find him likable? No. Do you, David? I don't, ah, man, that's a hard, I guess not. I, I, the question had never occurred to me until you asked it. Like, 
I'm realizing that I don't know that I think about, although I ask the question sometimes of you guys, I don't necessarily think about characters that way, especially early in books, because I feel like I don't know them very well, you know? And so, and then also there's the concept of like trying to separate the first section from the rest of the book for me. Um, I know, but no, he's like, I don't think, I think he's kind of inherently unlikable. Um, but also people find, but, but also the problem here is people find him likable. Like people trust him. Like, uh, Henry, uh, finds him likable and wants to talk to him. But then on the other hand, you've got the, the, um, uh, not savage, but savage's man. What's his name? The boy. Um, Portis. I want to say Portis, but I don't think that's so, right. something like that. Yeah. Um, yes. He he's Portis. like Marcus. Maybe Marcus. either he's really bad at his job, or maybe uh, Morris Morris is just not um, memorable. That's the other thing I was wondering. Like, is it is it possible he's yeah. just not a memorable guy, <laughs> but he thinks he's memorable? And that's like I love the way um, his own opinion of himself keeps kind of pushing up against uh, the other people's opinions of him. And he seems unaware of the fact that they're pushing up against each other. And sometimes he thinks worse of himself, but other people think better. And sometimes he thinks better of himself and other people seem to think worse of him. And the, there's like this conflict, these things are, they're constantly colliding with one another. Um, but he, he does seem kind of inherently like not like a great dude. <laughs> right. Well, and you have to wonder what is it like, and this is why the voice of the novel works so well is at the beginning, we get just him. And this whole time I'm wondering, what would I think of him if I weren't stuck in his head with him? What if I was out, what if I actually knew this man? Would I find him more likable than the inside of his head is? Because he seems like just really a jerk here. And which is interesting because usually when you're reading a first person novel, you're all for the narrator. This is where Graham Greene, I think, is a genius in this book. Because usually when I'm reading first-person novels, I'm almost always, like, I I almost always like the character and then I have to get outside him to dislike him. Well, I think this is the opposite. Sorry. That's all. I was just going to say, I think that the, this is why the meta discourse is effective and necessary in this book. Because you, if you're going to have a narrator who you are sort of, primed to dislike then you have to at least have the suspicion that change is possible and so the the concept of of narrative arc is inherently wound up in the notion of going from one place to another and so that 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 idea of change that the character is going to evolve and become something different or learn some kind of a lesson or you know start one place and be in another place at the end that's implicit within the structure uh not, not just the structure of the book, but within the themes of the book. And so you can, you, you can feel like he is going to be a different person at the end in a way that is uh, positive. And I think that that's yeah. why I think that allows Green to give us this character who is not the, not, the, not the kind of guy you want to spend a lot of time with, except that he's at least got a little bit of wit about him. Yeah. I was thinking about how much I'd like... Raskolnikov from Crime and Punishment. And it's not a first person, Crime and Punishment is not first person, but it's practically speaking, it's a first person narrative. We're with Raskolnikov. I like him. He's an ax murderer. I can't stand Maurice. 
and his sins are comparatively small. And I do think, like you said, Heidi, it's a testament to kind of um, Graham Greene's project and his ability that Maurice is so... There, there's kind of, there's an inner world for Maurice and there's an outer world. In the outer world, we see that Sarah falls in love with him. We see that Henry trusts him. We see all these kind of like interactions that say, oh, this is a person who's, who's likable, he's affable. And then when we are just alone in the room with Maurice, oh, he's difficult. He is just singular, almost not about singularly unpleasant, but he's an unpleasant character to be around, to just be stuck in his own head with. Right. Do, do, to me, well, I'll just ask this question. Do you think he still loves Sarah? Hmm. When is when, David? At the beginning of the book? Yeah, during this section. I mean, I know that the section jumps in time, but let's take the present time. Um, as opposed to the scenes that he's recalling. Uh, yes. Yes, I do. I think that, you know, there's probably a, a distinction to be made between, you know, love in the sense of charity that is actually redeeming to our lives and love in the sense of desire yes. for possession that is uh kind of takes over the mind and the soul. And it's definitely the latter for him. And absolutely at this point, yes, not the former. Like he does not love her with any kind of charity. He is, he becomes more self-absorbed as a result of his love for her. Um, And and more fragmented and broken as a person. But that's, you know, kind of part of the commentary on adultery and division that we have in this novel and in the nature of marriage. And, um, but in terms of the latter, he is absolutely obsessed with this woman and desires her and wants to possess her. Absolutely. And I think has a real affection for her. Like he is drawn to her and attached to her. What do you think, guys? I think you're right, Heidi. I don't think that he, if love is, as you said, like true charity, like the seeking of someone else's betterment, no matter what the cost to you, I don't know that he ever loves Sarah. Maybe, maybe he does at some point in the book, but certainly not Not when we kind of join him after the affair. Right. He and, wants, yeah, he wants to possess. And his description of the affair is exactly the same. Like his, his, he is so driven to possess her body and soul and so motivated by jealousy, which uh-huh. is the nature of adultery. And, and, and that's part of the thread of this novel too. Um, and so his love doesn't change after it's over. It's exactly the same as it was when they were doing it. And it's been a long time. Um, so I don't know, David, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think, yeah, I think that you guys are right. I mean, I, I don't know that. I think the idea of obsession and, and possession, I think, is, is really interesting. I read somewhere, it might have been a dust jacket of one of the books, but the idea that it's the story of a, of a man who's trying to, I can't remember how they put it, something like either destroy or reclaim, destroy 
M dash or reclaim M dash uh, his former lover or something like that. And that like that little bit of phrasing in copy on the on in a description of a book is is fascinating, right? Destroy or reclaim, and wow. the reclaim is just sort of off to an aside. It's not like destroy or win back. It's destroy or reclaim, and the aggression, like the aggression at the heart of that of those two words, like even the word that is meant to be like uh, about them um, reconciling, the word reclaim is still an aggressive word. It's not that That's much great less aggressive than destruction. Um, yeah, and, right. and and like so, I got to thinking about you know the way he wrote about her in in the book, and um, what you just said sparked this thought, Heidi. Because every time he talks about her, the things that he misses about her are like he speaks in terms of ownership. So yes. you know he's up, he's upset because you know earlier on when the affair is active, he's upset because Henry's going to be the one that gets to kiss her or whatever. And so you know he's always talking about how Henry has this like because it has the possession that he does not have, and that's the thing that upsets him. It's not that he misses something about her; it's that someone else gets something he doesn't get to have. Um, and then he's constantly talking about like the foot, the footsteps and like, there's all these very, these very, uh, physical, um, sensory, you know, like just in terms of things he's hearing or smelling or whatever, uh, details that, that are what he thinks about when he thinks about her. And it's less about her and more about these, like these things that he knows that Henry is experiencing. And so it's so much more about, about himself and like, what she does for him and less about her and who she is. And so we're kind of left as the readers to be, to get to know her for who she is, as opposed to what she is as a possession for, 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 uh, for Morris. And then also for Henry to a certain extent, although Henry is kind of a cipher. Um, He's kind of a, we don't really know him because he's, (laughs) I mean, like the, the amount of sympathy that the narrator has for him, varies from time to time and so you kind of have to read between the lines when you get to know henry um but i was thinking about how um there's just two times it's probably two of my favorite passages in this section in chapter six so part one chapter six it's in i'm in the penguin book and it's pages 38 and 39 there's a section the paragraph that begins but it was quite easy to return to work under those conditions so this is like the second full paragraph in that that chapter He's talking about writing, his writing, and he has this aside, and he says, as long as one is happy, one can endure any discipline. It was unhappiness that broke down the habit of work. When I began to realize how often we quarreled, how often I picked on her with nervous irritation, I became aware that our love was doomed. Love had turned into a love affair with a beginning and an end, which that beginning and an end line, of course, refers back to the opening line of the book. Story has no beginning and an end. Right, right. And we can talk about that in a minute. Put a pin in that, I guess. And then it says, I could name the very moment when it had begun. And one day I knew I should be able to name the final hour. When she left the house, I couldn't settle to work. I would re- reconstruct what we had said to each other. I would fan myself into anger or remorse. All the time, I knew I was forcing the pace. I was pushing, pushing the only thing I loved out of my life. As long as I could make believe that, that love lasted, I was happy. I think I was even good to live with. And so love did last. But if love had to die, I wanted it to die quickly. It was as though our love were a small creature caught in a trap and bleeding to death. I had to shut my eyes and wring its neck. And then, so he, so we get this image here of the creature caught in a trap and bleeding to death, which again, it's pretty aggressive. <laughs> and then if you turn the page, um, I think it's the next 
page. No, go back one page. Okay, here it is. It's back. Are you talking yeah. about the, the, the animal thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it says yeah. uh, on page 37, she turned her head sharply away as though she were looking to see if anyone was coming, to see if there was time. But when she turned again, the cough took her. She doubled up in the doorway and coughed and coughed. Her eyes were red with it. In her fur coat, she looked like a small animal cornered. And so he keeps referring to her as this trapped and their or their relationship is this animal that's trapped in a cage, this like bloody violent, this violent image. And there seems like a sort of um it speaks to this idea of ownership, you know, it even even like alludes to the idea of like a slave being trapped. And so the sees her looking back is is so dark in that way. Um and there's just not like like there's just not a lot of normal expression of affection from her about her. I was looking for it. I was trying to find like, where does he actually say, like he doesn't really even talk about how she's beautiful. Right. Or he doesn't talk about how she's um, like, she's appealing because of what she represents to him or means to him or what can do for him and not for who she is. Um, and that's, you know, that says everything, you know, in a way. Agreed. Well, he even talks about resenting her beauty and how he doesn't desire beautiful women because they make him feel inferior, uh, which That's, is yeah, yeah. very telling. And yes. there's there's so much self-revelation in this section about this character that's completely I don't want to say it's completely unconscious. There are other books in which the revelation is unconscious. And this, I think, he he knows himself relatively well. Um, he just is on his own side, as you pointed out. He thinks he's the hero in his story. There's no repentance at this point. There's no sense of... Um, that you know, the blame is all for his own unhappiness is always directed outward. It's her fault. It's Henry's fault. It's it's the reviewer's fault. It's it's everybody else's fault that he is so unhappy and and so jealous and so angry um, and so full of hate and and that. So it it isn't just that he doesn't know. In some ways, he does know himself. He knows I, beautiful women make me feel inferior. Um, he knows that, but he puts the wrong judgment on that. And I think we see that throughout this whole first section, which I think that's part of what makes him so profoundly unlikable um, is, is that he never takes responsibility for his own unhappiness. It's always somebody else's fault. Tim, did you want to add something? No, I, I, did not pick up on the thing that you noted, David, about um, when she was coughing, Sarah was like a small creature cornered. And then on the next page, it, their love was a small animal that needed to be killed. That was great. I hadn't seen that before. The stuff about the coughing, you know, the book is so, um, well, I mean, it's Graham Greene, right? It's Power and the Glory. I mean, had this too. It's it's all these illusions and images of sickness and disease, and you know the sort of physical manifestation, the objective correlative for interior uh, uh, disorientation is um, 
is so uh, almost on the nose, but on the other hand, on a way that's like insightful. Like, you know, it's, it's a little, like, I could see people complaining that it's a little bit too metaphorical for the character's interior lives. But it also plays because it's so um, human. Like it, it just you feel it so much. Like it, it's it's not a, even you've got these stories like in the jungle, right? <laughs> and the and the things that are meant to represent the interior lives are so foreign to people who live in like you know Concord, North Carolina in 2020. But but and yet the way he presents them make them so universally human. Um, that that's why I think. You know, I think that they work because of that, even if it feels a little bit on the nose, like a little bit too archetypal in some ways. On the other hand, archetypes stay archetypes for a reason, I suppose. Mm-hmm. What were you yeah. going to say, Heidi? Uh, well, I was going to ask you both. And this is a real question, not like a setup for my own answer. <laughs> like this is like <laughs> a real question. <laughs> what do you make of Mr. Parkus? Like he's, there's so few characters in this novel that every single one of them is intentional. So I guess I do have a comment. Um, Here it is. But my real question is, to your point about archetypes, is this an archetypal character? Is this just kind of a human insertion of some, like what, what purpose does this particular guy serve in the novel so far? What did you make of him? Tim, I want to hear this from you as a person who uh, has to, weave characters and the and and think about their purposes within a within a story so how do you take Parkus? i first off love how well drawn he is like he's only on stage for a little amount of time and he's i feel like i know this guy like i just know him so well because he's so well drawn i how do I say this? I think that he kind of serves a couple of purposes. He, 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 like, he is a detective. He supplies Maurice with information, just kind of like brute cold facts that Maurice then absorbs and kind of translates according to his own, what's the word we're going to use? Um, it's more than just like almost like a narcissism. Like, you know, he, he, everything that the detective gives him kind of becomes evidence against Sarah. However, there's this one moment where and this, I thought was just a great bit of stagecraft. All of my nomenclature is playwriting nomenclature. When the detective reports that Sarah, the party in question, was with uh, a man who he could not identify. And as the reader, we like, oh, we know who it is. It's Maurice. This is going to be so satisfying when he reveals himself. And I thought it was like so well done for two reasons. It's both kind of like thrilling as an audience member to know what the detective does not know, but also, as David says, uh, Maurice gets to be the kind of star, the hidden star in his own story for a little bit. You know, ha it was me that she was with. You didn't see it. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder if there was, he, he, Maurice appreciated the humor of the moment, but I think maybe even more, he appreciated that um, he was the central character in the reporting. 
just like he is in his own head. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. I know. I really like that. I think that's good. All right. David, what did yeah. you make of Mr. Parkus? I like what Tim's saying. I, I, I also think there's like a humor, a humorousness about him, a light like that the story could use. His drooping mustache and he drops the beer and the way he looks, thinks about his kid. And it's like full of humor and pathos at the same time. Um, and also, of course, uh, there's the famous line where it says, the end of the section, it says, I become nearly human enough to think of another person's trouble when he's hearing the story. Yeah. So that, you know, that, I think as you said, it takes him out of his own head. I also think there's like a uh, circularity that introduced, that his character introduces to the novel. So um, this is a novel about watching people. <laughs> um, and you get a lot of scenes where just kind of on a very basic level, Morris is Maurice is watching what's going to happen, what's happening in Sarah and Henry's house. And so he's trying to deduce all these facts about him, almost like a detective. And he's trying to work out how he can, you know, insert himself into the situation and so forth. And, and then you've got Henry's watching his wife and then he hires the detective. And then Sarah is also watching Henry trying to figure out what's going on. And so mm-hmm. this is a book about people watching other people trying to figure out what their actions mean. Like, what does what you're doing mean to me? And how do I interpret yeah. the actions that you're taking? And so we have to have the detective character in the book because it formalizes that action of watching, but also because it then turns the watching on the narrator. He's not just mm-hmm. watching um, other people, and he's not, which is what a good narrator does, but he's also not just spying on you know, his former lover or spying on his friend's wife or what, however you want to look at it. He's also being watched. And so as as the narrator or as he's describing to Bendrix what he saw, it's, it's also the concept of it being turned on him. And there's the idea of circularity uh, and repetitiveness comes up a lot in this book. So at the end of the chapter we read, even there's this idea of, um, yeah, she said it would be better if I called you, she told me and caution. I thought caution, how well she knows how to conduct an affair like this. And I remembered again, that stare that always, always was the word she used squeaked so even there the, at the end of the section there's this idea of always like of, of eternity of circularity of repetition how she's probably done this before and that idea keeps coming up and i think that that there's this cir- circle of watching as well this kind of never ending like if, unless someone breaks the circle it just goes on forever and i think that he represents that theme in a sort of formal practical way in the story mm. yeah um, it occurred to me also while you were talking, David, that the detective, Mr. Parkus, loves his son, like genuinely loves his son. And in that way is another contrast with Maurice. So the detective is willing to kind of own his own faults and shortcomings and because he wants his son to kind of thrive and surpass him. And so he's, he's a very unselfish man. He's kind of, he, he's representative sort of a blunderer. Um, but he is a really dignified man. He's, he's a man who really wants his son to thrive and is willing to admit his faults and shortcomings 
yeah. to help his son thrive. I, another contrast with our main character who that's just not possible for Maurice at this point in the story. He couldn't, he couldn't do such a thing. He couldn't let Sarah go um, because it would be so destructive to himself, he believes. Yeah. Yeah, there's a nobility about him. There is. Not, not about Even though everything on the, the outward appearance is just the opposite. The outward appearance of him is, you know, he's, um, he's lower class. For me, he sounds a little bit cockney. You know, he, he just doesn't have, he's drooping, as Heidi said, his eyes are, or his mustache is drooping. Like he, doesn't, he's not, he doesn't cut a refined figure. But inside him, he's a, he's a noble person. Hmm. Heidi, go ahead. You're on the edge of your seat. Not was, literally, but. Right. Um, yeah, no, this is helpful for me. I also, I find him just a little bit mysterious and this puts him in a context for me. And I think also he provides an opportunity for Maurice to see himself from the outside. That, you know, Maurice is hunting for Sarah's lover and he is Sarah's lover, right? Like there's, it's, it's him. He's the culprit that he's hunting for. Um, and he can't see himself. He has to actually pay somebody in order to see himself clearly. Like there's just this, this constant element of blindness, um, to Maurice. And even, I really like that David pointed out the cornered animal image for Sarah and that in one part, in, in, in one counterpart of that image, he's the culprit. Like he's the one who has her cornered is about to kill her. And in, in the other, we're not sure yet who the Hmm. culprit is. Right. And that's part of the mystery of the story. This is in some ways a mystery story. He is trying to Mm -hmm. hunt down Sarah's lover and there is a lover. We just don't know who it is. And, Mm um, and, but at the same time, it's also always him. So there's, there's just these multiple levels of meaning in this story. That's, it's a very simple on one hand and very complex on the other. And, and Mr. Parkus is, in some ways, the guy who's, he's, he's maybe the vessel of the ordinary person who's looking in from the outside and just like, this guy is who he, she's having an affair with. Yeah. And it's him the whole time. Yeah. It's just, he's just back. He's like Tim said, he's, he's about the facts. Yeah. And, and that's, that's an opportunity for Maurice to see himself and he, he can't yet. Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned the inside outside thing because they have a conversation about that. Yeah. So yeah. at the end of every time I want to look at something with two hands, like move, use my hand, I got to put my phone down. Chapter six, <laughs> towards the end of that, it says, uh, he bent his head and sat there looking into his hat, which lay on his knees. I tried to cheer him up. Oh, it's not serious. I said, if you look at it from the outside, it's really quite funny, but I'm on the inside, mm-hmm. sir. He said, yeah. And so here, um, and it says he turned his hat round and went on in a voice as damp and dreary as the common outside. It's not Mr. Savage I mind about, sir. It's, about, it's my boy. He goes on. Um, I actually think that the fact that he turned his hat around there is, uh, is important. Because I, I, I really believe that, that, that images of circularity in this book are all over the place. And I think the green is doing that on purpose. Um, because I think that on the one hand, this inside-outside thing is an opportunity, as, as Heidi said, for him, for 
Fendrix to get outside of himself. You know, he even says here, I'm on the outside, you're on the inside. But then um, he says that it's really quite funny. And in a way, we can also invert that and say, you know, what, if, we look on the, if we look at the outside and Bendrix is on the inside, there's a sort of patheticness about Bendrix too, just like there's a sort of patheticness from being on the outside of uh, Parkus's side. But then on the other hand, it, it, there's like this idea of being inside and outside the circle that I was talking about, like the circle of all the watching. And right now, Parkus, as he says, is on the inside of that circle of watching, and he brings us to the inside of that circle. So hmm. I, I'm really fascinated by what Green is doing here with this idea of like watching and circles and being on the inside and the outside, and uh, the way that kind of uh, changes the nature of conflict in the book because you're not really totally sure who's in the circle and who's outside of the circle and who's who's partnering with who and who's who is not partnering with who and who's out to get another person. And, you know, all, all the different relationships become intertwined in a way that's uh, very complex. And as you said, it has a mystery about it that's all, that we get to unravel as the readers. Um, right. And also, you know, of course he's wearing a bowler hat. <laughs> you just mean like his right. character would? Is that what you mean, David? <laughs> yeah, he's got a droopy mustache. Yeah. And, uh, Obviously. He's wearing a bowler hat while he drinks his pint. And right, well, because of that, he's both a stock character and as Tim pointed out, a completely human character Parkus is like, he has this personhood to him, but you know, based on what you're saying, David, he should be just kind of another like kind of 1940s stock character, right. With the bowler hat and the droopy mustache and the cockney accent and the job and, and then, but, but Graham Greene brings him to life, especially with the boy. This is a person who actually knows how to love somebody. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the questions of the novel. I find it so interesting that everybody is watching Sarah. Like, again, there's few characters in this novel. This is not like a sweeping panorama of life. Like, this is a very intimate domestic novel. And she yeah. is at the center of everything. And mm. everybody like is watching cave. her. Yes, that, yes. And if it's a circle, right, she's at, she's, in the center and there's like the elephant down in the ring yes and i think there's something in some ways what's brilliant about that there's something very catholic about that this is a very catholic novel that there's this kind of luminous woman at the center of everything and and she's kind of infused with light illuminated throughout this entire novel but right now she's an adulteress that's what we know about her we know Mm. she's likable and we know that she is married to one man and sleeping with another man and that there's havoc in her wake but Mm. somehow we're still drawn to her as the reader and i think that's brilliant on the part of graham green i don't know how he could do that at this point knowing what we know about what she's doing and and how much Bendrix wants well, us to believe he hates her. And yet somehow we're like, she's the lovable one in this novel so far. Yeah. Well, her sickness helps with that. The fact that she's yeah. she's ill, she's yeah, you know, she seems weak. She seems oppressed, like the the cage metaphor is all like I think he has very subtly yes. made us feel sorry for her in a way. Um right. and also well, we know that he's so mean to her. her and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As we it could it has to start with her, you know, even though we know that she's flawed <laughs> it has to start with her getting kind of uh thematically beaten on because otherwise right. it doesn't work otherwise it's, it's like we're not gonna 
there's not going to be that mystery about her. We're just going to kind of be right. like, meh, who cares? Can, you guys, can I ask a plot question? I, I feel like I missed something in the timeline that I got a li- that it didn't like really bother me when I was reading it. But when I finished, I was confused. I thought, wait, I didn't put something together right in my head. Let me try to explain what it is. The opening of the book, Maurice meets Henry. The writer meets the husband. And Henry is preoccupied because he thinks that Sarah is seeing someone, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wants to hire a detective and Maurice is willing to kind of stand in for him and say, no, I'll, I'll take this for you because it's, it'd be so unpleasant for you as a husband. I'm willing to do this. Okay. My question is where are Maurice and Sarah is the affair? The affair's over, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. It's the 18, so, it's 18 months later. Yeah. So when Maurice meets with the detective later, mm-hmm. he is not the man that the detective is actually looking for. No, right. he's a past lover. But he yes. is the man that, that the detective saw in the restaurant because right. they had lunch, but right. he's not the one right. that Henry wants to know about. Yes, right. Right. Okay. But the, and he's also not the one that uh, Morris, Morris wants to know about. Right. Yes, right. Which is another, I mean, to your point, David, I had not noticed the circles, but it's another circle in the novel that Maurice and Sarah had an affair in the past. And now we believe that Sarah is repeating. She is like circling and mm-hmm. doing the same thing again, 18 months after her affair with Maurice. Right. That's his suspicion. And that's Henry's suspicion. Now, both mm-hmm. of these men mm-hmm. that love her suspect that she is cheating on them, yeah. which she would be on Henry and not a Maurice, but that's the matter to him. So, mm-hmm. what, yeah. What is the famous definition of a line from uh, from Euclid? Euclid. A line is that which has no, what well, my dad... Uh, well, he would, he, he's always quoting the point, right? A point is that which has no part. Um, yeah, yeah. A point is know. that which has no part. Yeah, I don't know about the line, though. Okay, what were so, you thinking, David? Well, I'm just thinking about that opening line, because a story has no beginning or end. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if, like, I mean, the, the idea of not having a beginning or end, what doesn't have a beginning or end? Only a circle, right? Um, yes. And so, I'm, yes. like, that's right there from the beginning, but I'm wondering if it's meant to be, like, the suge- like, the idea of narrative itself is usually... Um, you know, you can, you can draw it out a line. There's like, you know, the, the concept of narrative shape, you know, we think about it in triangles and you can build outlines and all that kind of stuff. So it seems like he's doing something there that I guess I'm just, I want to think about it in terms of the geometry of what he's saying about narrative hmm. um, and how it works. And like that, that line, or that line of story has no beginning or end. It, it feels like it's an, a direct allusion to, to Euclid or some geometry book. <laughs> Um, like if, if there was some definition of a circle that says like a circle is that which has no beginning or end, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> mm. But the idea that right. he says arbitrarily one chooses that moment of experience from when to look, look back or from which, which to look ahead. And I wanted to ask you before we go, as kind of a final point. Does it seem like he uses the word arbitrarily, but does that seem like the right word to you? Like, does that seem that, why does Graham Greene make his narrator say the word arbitrarily there? 
I think that is such a great question because it kind of forces us to pay attention then to his other point in that paragraph, which is when he says, but do I, in fact, of my own will choose that black, wet January night on the common in 1946, the sight of Henry Miles slanting across the wide river of rain, or did these images choose me? It is convenient. It is correct according to the rules of my craft to begin just there. But if I had believed then in a God, I could also have believed in a hand plucking at my elbow, a suggestion, speak to him. He hasn't seen you yet. There's so much going on, on in this paragraph. Oh my gosh, it's so mm-hmm. brilliant. And mm-hmm. then the next page, he describes how he doesn't want to speak to Henry. He doesn't want to talk to him. He could have just walked right by him, but instead he feels compelled to. So, in that sense, to, to not answer your question, but just to deepen the mystery of the question, right? Like it almost seems as though he's claiming both that it is completely arbitrary and that there was such a hand on his arm saying, this is the beginning point. Well, I think that, you know, he says, if I had believed then in a God, which, right. which uh, suggests, a, word. suggests a lot, just as like, I say with one chooses with the inaccurate pride of a professional writer who has been praised for his technical ability. Like it's being self-deprecating and yet it's also being revealing to us as readers um, with your outside of the character. This, the, the number of things he implies in this single paragraph is kind of amazing. You know, the, the idea of the line being contrasted with a circle it's a very uh, Christian or Jewish Christian. Let me back up. I think the pagan world previous to Christianity or the kind of influence of the Jews thought of history as a recurring circle. Hmm. The seasons change. So winter, spring, summer, fall, um, plants die and are reborn after the seeding. So you can see in nature, this recurring circle over and over. Nietzsche talks over and over about kind of the recurring cycle of history and like, let's stop thinking about history in terms of a timeline. And historians kind of universally acknowledge that the introduction of the idea of history as an arrow that is going in a certain direction is something that was given by the Jews on their way to the promised land from the wilderness, hmm. Christians on their way to salvation. Like the notion the of progress? progress? Yes. Yes, the notion of progress is a very, it's a, a Christian notion. And so I even wonder if, I, I'm not, I, I, I would need to like think about this throughout the reading of the book. If Maurice is kind of being contrasted as the pagan who cannot understand like the sort of like arrow delineate or not delineation, the kind of narrative arrow that is going to be Sarah's life. Hmm. Hmm. I think that's interesting because uh, I like that. I think that I'm going to think about that, Tim. I think that's really interesting because once you get to the medieval scholastics and later medieval thinkers, there is still a notion of circles and time. But as Dante put it, he put it, those cycles on a mountain, right? That's moving upwards. And, mm. and I think that's 
when you get to this kind of mid 20th century tormented Catholic imagination, these novels, Evelyn Waugh, um, Graham Greene, and then even Eliot, that there's this obsession of the contemplation of cycles, how, how cycles and progress can work together. Yes, right, right, right. How they tell the same story right. of God's redeeming love. And, and I find it so fascinating that these are all, without exception, reluctant converts to the faith that still were very tormented. Through, and you see it in their writing and you see it in their prose, you see it in their interviews. Like Graham Greene did not want to be a Christian. Mm. And he considered himself heterodox all the way through his entire life. And at the time he wrote this, he was having an affair with a married woman. Mm. And, and so there's just so much of that question of how can I be both progressing towards the kingdom and still mired in the temptations of, of this world? And how can I be both flesh and spirit? Like it's, it's just this, exploration of Romans seven in a lot of ways. And, and it's brilliant. Like, I love it because I feel that Mm. very, very much in my own spiritual walk. And so seeing it reflected in these stories is like great comfort to me. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, So I, and just makes a brilliant novel with all these layers of meaning and mystery embedded within them. Mm. Well, yeah, that opening paragraph, it's, you know, we've so talked good. on this show before about how really excellent writers can put the whole novel in the opening sentence or maybe the opening paragraph in the whole novel is in this opening paragraph. It might be fun to reread it once we've finished the last chapter. Yeah, for sure. And there's, you know, you know. there's even a few sections that allude to it again, you know, with that, you know, I think there's two times that allude to that opening line or the opening paragraph, just in the section we read this time. So that suggests it's probably going to happen again. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we should probably wrap this up. Any final thoughts from either of you? I do have a final thought. I was going to let Tim go first because I just talked for a really long time. (laughs) We'll we'll bracket it. it. We'll bracket it. (laughs) Okay. Um, The image of the unfaithful wife and the image of adultery is, I mean, it's, it is not, just in this novel that that's that this is used like this is a very biblical image this is a very just just with a very modern twist to it um but i i i think it's brilliant how green how graham green did that he kind of lifted this image from the pages of scripture in which the unfaithful wife is the bad guy in the story it's mm. and um and and rightly so unfaithfulness is wrong so adultery is a very grave sin um but he he upends it a little bit he subverts that a little bit in a lot actually in this novel and and i think he does it in a very he kind of takes that fable that allegory and changes it um and so i've been thinking about it this time as I'm reading it, tracing this allegory of, of redeeming love. Um, and instead of villainizing uh, the, um, the unfaithful wife, we have a little bit of a situation of Christ writing in the sand and saying, he who 
has not committed sin throw the first stone, right? There's just as much of an emphasis on the lover with whom she is unfaithful as there is on her. Mm. And, and I think that's just brilliant, but it's a very scriptural allegory. Hmm. Proverbs. Hmm. The, the wisdom of um, the woman in, in Proverbs 31 is contrasted with mm-hmm. the adulterous woman who's kind of like, waiting in the doorway, seeking to kind of entice the young man who hasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's a great point, Heidi. What are y'all's final thoughts? Yeah, David. I don't think, I don't have one, David. Do you have one? No, I think I'm good. Graham Greene. <laughs> well, as I, as I texted you guys last night, Graham Greene is a good writer. So Great success. Yeah. I, Graham Greene's always, his books are always, you know, even in their moments when you're kind of like, yeah, that's not, it's not Graham Greene at his peak. They're always interesting. Like there's always something to talk about. So uh, I think I think this will be a great conversation. Um, I <laughs> I enjoyed that people were posting on social media like things like I some of the comments were I read this whole thing in one day. I can't wait to hear you guys talk about it and talk about it on the Facebook page. And then there were people who were like, "We just finished Anne and we're in quarantine and I don't know if I'm ready to be depressed again." <laughs> and I totally get that. So you know, if it's too depressing, then we understand and we'll see you. Keep going though. This isn't the whole novel. Yeah. I I did think, David, like it was either like a really fortuitous accident or a touch of genius. I'm going to say it's a touch of genius. Of course it is. That you kind of bracketed Anne of Green Gables with The Catcher in the Rye and End of the Affair. Like if we had to go straight from Catcher in the Rye to the End of the Affair, that would have been hard. (laughs) It would have been like pacing through the desert. But Anne of Green Gables, gave us a green flourish between. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, well said. I want to remind people that you can join the conversation. There is a Facebook page, of course. Head over there to well, plenty, of, plenty of chatter about the end of the affair. Uh, there's also Instagram. We're at Close Reads Podcast. And then if you can uh, follow the sign up for the newsletter. That's closereads.substack.com. If you want to email us directly, of course, it's closereadspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and don't forget about... Uh, the Patreon episodes on crime and punishment. We have another one coming soon. So head over to patreon.com slash close reads. And then we also have the plays, the thing, all five episodes plus a bonus episode of Tim and Heidi's conversation about as you like it is now available. And then coming soon will be Tim's conversation with Sarah Jane Bentley about what Coriolanus, right? That's what you said. Yes. So uh, go binge those as you like it episodes. They did a great job. Uh, if you like as you like it as much as I do, you definitely need to listen to those. So there's plenty of content. I uh, also got the daily poem, of course, and uh, a number of other things coming down the pipeline. So, you know, binge away, I guess, is, is what I'm saying. And with that, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time. And until then, happy reading. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.